Well, good morning, everyone. And um, if, if you haven't met me yet, um, let me introduce myself. My name is Paul Buckley, and one of the pastors here, as, as was said earlier. Uh, we're glad you're here. We are going through Romans as a church. Uh, we usually take time to go through books of the Bible, and because we believe that the Word of God is effective for us and imparting the life He wants to give to us and sustain us in and send us forth in as well. So we take time to, to proclaim His Word and, and to learn from His Word. So we're in Romans chapter 1, uh, continuing. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will project the verses, but it's better to have something in your hands if you're here with us. Uh, we do have journals of Romans. Those are yours that are free to take. Uh, speaking of free to take, um, uh, I recently wrote a book, and this is going to be the basis for a class starting on Wednesday this week, and then the Sunday afterwards. These copies are now available at the back, uh, free to anybody uh, in our church. They're, they're not uh, public yet, so keep them to yourselves if you could, but that's yours, uh, free to get if you want to be in the class, or even if you don't want to be in the class and just want to read it, uh, take one uh, at some point and enjoy. I hope it's uh, helpful to you. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 32, and uh, the title of the message today is Trading Glory Away. Um, have, you ever, uh, have you ever put something together from the store uh, and not realized that you got something backwards until you were done putting it together? Has that ever happened? Uh, it's happened to me a lot. Uh, home projects, fixing the car, repairing appliances, recipes as well. Uh, when it doesn't come out, something I did something wrong, obviously. Uh, it, it just happened this past week, actually. Uh, we got a new cat crate because our cat actually chewed through the last one while we were driving up to New Hampshire. Uh, and so I, we had this cat crate, and we were, I was putting the finishing touches on the crate, uh, screwing in the wing nuts. Yep, that's right. This one had wing nuts. This was a heavy-duty one. Uh, and I was putting the wing nuts together, and I looked, and the door was in backwards. So I had to take it apart and start again and put the door in right. I do that all the time. It happens to me a lot. Things uh, are made to function a certain way, right? And when you get them wrong, they don't work. Uh, and one part that's off can lead to the whole thing not working. Well, our passage today is a lesson in this. It's a lesson in the reality that things are made a certain way by God, and we're supposed to follow His direction so that we can experience the fullness of the function of God's design. This is a lesson for humanity. And we are made in God's image. We're made to reflect His glory and His goodness. He's designed us a certain way, but we've fallen into a deep brokenness, and there's mis dysfunction in that. Uh, ultimately, behind that dysfunction is this, this commitment, this nonsensical commitment we all have that, that works in us to trade glory and goodness for shame. And that's really what this passage is going to talk about, trading in glory for uh, things that are not glorious, honor for dishonor. And then the reality in this passage is that we need help. We need rescue, every one of us. Now, this passage in particular is going to address a topic nowadays that is a, uh, a really uh, important topic, a much talked about topic, a controversial topic. It's going to talk 
about the practice of homosexuality. And I know it's a very unpopular view. First, let me say, if you are offended during this, let me tell you, offense is not my goal. And if you can hang in there for this message, I think you'll better understand what the Apostle Paul is after and what the Word of God is after, and more importantly, what God is after in this. There are many misunderstandings around this topic. And I think at least I can, by God's grace, make clear to you what the Christian view on this topic is. I hope even more so that you will understand that there is much merit in this view, and even more so that it is a compelling view, and it is worth making the hard choices to resist the mainstream culture on this. So I just want you to know that ahead of time as we get into this. And if you can just hang in there, uh, and certainly afterwards if you have any questions, I would be glad to talk to you and to hear your questions and do my best to answer those. But let's pray, because I need God's help, and so do we, to hear this, to hear God's truth clearly and faithfully, and to walk in His way. So Lord, we pray for your help this morning. We pray as we look at your word that you would help us. I pray, Lord, you'd help me to teach your word clearly, gently, graciously, and truthfully. And I pray you'd help us to understand your truth. And we ask, Lord, help us to see the goodness and glory in your ways. And help us to follow and to love and proclaim as a result. Come in power, Holy Spirit. Be here with us. Do all these things and more and glorify your worthy name, we pray. Amen. God's word in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God's word from Romans 1, 24 to 32. Last week we looked at the earlier verses here, 18 to 23, and we learned that we are lost in foolishness because of our suppression of the truth, the truth about God, the truth about God that is clearly revealed in creation. This week Paul continues his explanation of the situation, starting in verse 4, with a therefore... And the following result. And so what he's doing here is saying this is the reality. We've traded the truth about God and the glory of God for falsehood and unglorious things. We've made this exchange of the glory. And this is what follows. So there's a therefore here. And then three times, you probably heard as I read, 
Paul used this phrase, gave up. So what we're looking at are the results of that choice to exchange the glory of God revealed in the natural order for something else. Therefore, God gave them up, speaking historically of people and especially of the Gentile world. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, verse 24. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, verse 26. God gave them up to a debased mind, verse 28. These three repetitions of giving up uh, give us our main point and the key subpoints in this section. The main point, of course, is that we've given up God, so He's given us up to these things. And then the three subpoints would be given up to dishonoring our bodies, given up to dishonorable passions, given up, given up to a debased mind and all manner of unrighteousness. So that, that's the main point, three points. So let's dig in and learn from God's word. So first, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So therefore, God has given us up to these things. This is the result of exchanging the goodness and glory of God for a corrupted view. The result of abandoning God in his goodness and glory is God giving us up, abandoning us, letting us go our way into this corrupt way of doing things, this dishonoring of our body. Now, Paul wants us to understand in this, and he does this in his use of language, just how sad this exchange is. He uses the language of worship here. He says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and then worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Those words worshipped and served are, are worship words. That word serve there doesn't mean general service like helping uh, sort of service. It means a religious service. It's the sort of word that was used for what the priests did in the temple. They serve. They, they, they use their, their time and their energy to help facilitate the worship of God, the enjoyment of God, of prayer and sacrifice and offerings and singing to the Lord. That's the sort of service it's talking about. And so Paul's using this sort of language to say that they've basically exchanged the worship and service of God for the worship and service of what God created. They've made this terrible, sad exchange. And then he says of God, he was blessed forever. Amen. Again, an, a phrase that would have been used in worship quite a bit. If you read the Psalms, you'll see that. The, the one who is blessed forever. Uh, God is blessed forever. He's the glorious one. And, and this points to something that's really important in this whole passage and in the whole Bible. is to understand that this exchange uh, is, is a tragedy, is the ultimate tragedy. And the positive side of that most importantly, is the value of worshiping God. God himself is the very best thing any of us could ever experience. Both God and his ways and his goodness and glory is the very best thing that we can experience. And, and that value has to be at the core of how we think about ourselves, how we think about God, how we think about reality. That has to be at the core that ultimately it's about the very best thing, which is God himself. And his creation is glorious, but it's meant to point us not to creation itself, not to ourselves, but to God. That we might see that he's good and glorious, that we might love and enjoy him, that we might thank him and honor him, that we might depend on him and know him. 
And so Paul, as he's introducing this tragedy, he wants us to see that it's sad because we've exchanged all that for something else that is not glorious. And, and as a result, everything gets turned upside down and gets mixed up. God is the source and the sustainer and the destination of all that is true, good, and glorious. And apart from Him, there is nothing that is thoroughly good and glorious and true. Only partial, twisted truths. Only things that are somewhat good. Only glories that are slightly corrupted. Only in God is everything fully true and fully good and truly beautiful and glorious. And that's all met together in who He is and what He does and how He does things. And when we trade that, we corrupt all that. And we're left with something that is at best a partial truth. And of course, partial truths can be a great evil. That's the background here. And he's going to illustrate this as he follows from here. I could illustrate this perhaps otherwise, but I'm going to let Paul illustrate it for us. What he says is this, this tragedy of exchanging God and all of his goodness, all of his glory, all of his mercy, all of his kindness, all of his genius, all of his power, exchanging God for these other things leads to, leads to a corruption leads to a, corru a corruption of how we live and how we regard even ourselves and how we treat our own bodies. It works itself out, these partial truths, these partial, partially good, partially glorious things work themselves out into actually abusing our own bodies, treating our own bodies inappropriately. That's what sexual immorality is, by the way. Because he addresses in this illustration, in this passage, the mistreatment of our own bodies, in particular in regards to aspects of our sexuality. And when we abandon God, we are abandoned to confusion and perversion of God's good and glorious purposes for our sexuality. Sexual immorality at the heart is a dishonoring of our bodies. That's important to get. It's a really important truth about sexual immorality. And if we don't understand that that's what's at the core, we're going to be like, what's the big deal? What's the big hang-up? Why is this an issue? Because we don't see how important it is to who we are and how important it is to how God represents himself through us. Now, it's a topic we could talk much about. I do talk about it quite a bit in the book. Um, just briefly, let me take us back to the, the core where everything got started. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 and 27 explains the background to this. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. So the Trinity is making man in our image. Generic term, man as well as to be implied there. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God created mankind to rule over his creation, to multiply, to utilize creation. And to reflect his character and glory in this. But an essential part of that is making us as a binary. Making us 
as male or female. That's right there in the, in the sentence about making man in his image is making us male and female. A binary, male or female, you're either one or the other. And our complementarity as men or women expresses the nature and character of God. God himself is three diverse persons in perfect and complete unity. He is three in one, one in three. He's not three persons identical in function and personhood, but three diverse persons in perfect unity. And so if he wants to make mankind in his image, it makes sense not to make mankind a singularity. He could have done that. There are species that reproduce as singularities. But instead, he made us male or female. So there would be a complementarity, a coming together in relationship. And of course, the third aspect of that is our union with God himself. We're made to have union with God and to be an image in some ways of the three in one. So our gender, our sexuality is an important part of how we glorify God. And we're meant to live in this complementary relationship. Now that happens in marriage and marriage is a profound fulfillment of the image of God as a man and a woman come together Diverse and different, complementing one another, but in union, depending on God, imaging God in that. But you don't need to be married to do that, because eternally, none of us will be married. In heaven, in the new creation, we're not given in marriage. We are to live in union with God, perfect union, still imaging God as we do that. So singleness is a profound way to image God, but you do that in the context of community, where men and women live together in relationship as brothers and sisters, like a family, complementing each other in their masculinity and femininity, together in union in the Lord as God's family, imaging him. That's a profound way to do this as well. So it's not that marriage is the better state. In scripture, they're, they're put on par with each other. And singular, being single is the ultimate state, being married in union with the Lord. And so this is how we image God. This is inherent in Genesis 1 and throughout the Bible. It's part of how we show his goodness and glory. And it's as a man or a woman. And all of that means in God's design, in biology, psychology, spirituality, every aspect. He makes us a man or a woman with all these purposes behind it. And it all is part of his plan right from the beginning. It's not a side issue. It's not an artifact of the need to reproduce or something like that. It's at the core of what it is to image God. So understanding our purpose and design, understanding what God is after is so important here and helps us so much, I think, to understand why this is an important issue and why when we get it mixed up, it's so important and such a tragedy. Sexual immorality is a sin against the core of who we are as those made in God's image. God has a plan. He has a way to express himself through you as a man or a woman and through your sexuality and all the aspects of that. I don't have time to get into all those details. Um, we could do that in other messages. We can do that in our class coming up on Wednesday as well. But understanding purpose and design is so important in understanding morality. God does not make rules up because he likes rules. 
He's not just someone who just wants to have a long list because it just makes him feel better. When, when my universe has lists, I feel better about it. No, the, the, what's behind this is God's design, his purpose. Morality uh, is about his purpose and design, about his goodness and glory being made known. He has a purpose so that he might show his goodness and glory and how things function. That's so important to get to. And it's so important to get for us, our own sake, so that we're motivated to follow the law, to love God's ways. But also as we interact with the world, they, they're going to be like, what's the deal? What's the hang up? And we need to explain this. There's no hang up here. It's not that at all. This is about fulfillment. This is about goodness. This is about glory. This is about God in and through our lives. That's a way more faithful argument and a way more effective argument as we interact with the world. So we need to understand design and purpose as what's behind all this. I have a picture to show of a pair of scissors. These are very special scissors. I keep them on my desk. I keep them in relatively good shape. They are from my Aunt Catherine. My Aunt Catherine uh, was a dear family member who, as I grew up, was like... Uh, well, she was an aunt, but she came to all the family functions, and so she was like part of our family. Um, and it's the only thing I have from her, her life, only physical thing I have are her scissors. They're really cool scissors. Um, they're special scissors. They're not kind of standard. I don't think they make them like this anymore. I don't know if they're silver-coated. I think they might be. My Aunt Catherine was a devout Christian. Uh, she was a single woman who never married. Uh, and these scissors I, I value because of them being my Aunt Catherine's scissors. Now, what would you think if I took these scissors and I used them to cut firewood, took them outside and started chopping away at a piece of wood? Or then I started digging ditches for planting with the scissors. What would you think? What would you say? The first thing would be like, you're going to break them. Stop, right? They're not made to cut wood. They're not made to dig ditches. And if you do it, you're going to break them. And then the second thing we'd like, don't you care at all about your Aunt Catherine? Right? Wouldn't you? Those would be the two things that would come to mind. Well, similarly with us. We're made by our good God who loves us and is all wise. And he has a design in who we are as a man or a woman in our sexuality. And it's a good purpose. It's a glorious thing. And if we understand who he is and what his design is and how it functions, we'll want to follow in his ways. And of course we'll want to do it just because it's honoring him, the creator. The right use of who we are according to his word is honoring him and using us according to his plan. That's what's behind all this. And that's what's so sad in the corruption of humanity is that we get things upside down. And we dishonor the creator and we misuse, even abuse, his natural order, his design. Now Paul will go on in this section to talk more about this. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then speaks of homosexuality, both with women and men. And, and the point here is the, the context is this natural order of God is being turned upside down. It began in the earlier chapter last week we talked about. The natural order reveals the glory of God. We're meant to, to honor him and thank him. That's the natural way. When we look at creation, we ought to say, wow, there's a powerful God who made this and he's good. The natural order is to respond to him. That gets turned upside down. And now he continues to say the natural order in our sexuality is now turned upside down. That's what's going on. It's not here because Paul has a hang-up with homosexuality. He's not homophobic. That's not what's going on here. 
homosexuality is not the summation of the brokenness of humanity, but an illustration of the brokenness of humanity. That's what he's doing here. He's illustrating this brokenness. Now he's going to go on in the last section, we'll get to that, to say it has all sorts of ramifications. But this is an illustration of how we do things that are unnatural, are against what's obvious in our created beings, in our biological design. That's what he's saying here. We're given up to this sort of behavior, this sort of confusion, this sort of turning things upside down. That's what's being said, and that's what God's Word teaches about this issue. We don't have an agenda here against homosexuality. We have an agenda to trust God and walk in His ways and learn His ways and live according to His design. Now, in our culture right now, it thinks very differently about this, and I think you all know that. Sexual choices are determined by our desires and preferences. That's how things happen. That's the, the ethic, really. It's, what do you want to do? As long as it doesn't really hurt anybody and it feels good, go and do it, right? That's more or less how things are decided. We see acting on our desires and preferences, uh, preferences as being fully human. It's the moral standard to, to express yourself, to make your own choices, to decide for yourself what is best, and to follow your desires. And your preferences so you can be fulfilled. Be true to yourself. That's the sort of thinking that's there. And so sexual freedom and expression is fundamental to personhood in our culture. That's what's going on. And so when you start to say, no, you shouldn't do that, you're assaulting not just the idea, but the person. And their perception of personhood. And I must support that freedom of choice if I have any respect for others and not oppose that. If we're caring human beings, we must affirm them in their choices because the way it's thought of, this is fundamental to being human. And it's assault on our humanity to do otherwise. But this idea of self is radically different than the Bible and radically different than even the history of, of most cultures. We are not essentially our choices or desires or preferences. We are not defined by our choices or desires or preferences in our personhood. It's not defined subjectively. It's, uh, it's assigned, it's determined objectively. It's outside of ourselves. God defines who we are, not us. We're not essentially autonomous, self-sustaining beings. We are creations made by God, made by another. And we owe him our faith, independence, and obedience. And we depend on him for the definition of who we are. It's not self-determined. That is a, a bankrupt idea. Because we're creations, not the creator. We're made in the image of God. We're made with a purpose. We're made to, to image Him. We're made to do that in community. We're made to do that in love. We're made to shine forth His goodness and glory. And there are specifics to all that. You cannot do whatever you feel like doing and fulfill your purpose to love others. You must control your desires and your choices in order to fulfill your purpose to image God and to truly love others. That's a core reality to God's universe. 
Yet our culture says, no, it's the other way around. It won't work because it is God's universe. We must control our desires and choices so to comply with our purpose and to maximize, to maximize, to maximize love and goodness and glory. So if you're a woman, that looks a certain way. If you're a man, that looks a certain way in how you handle your body. We are both very similar as human beings, but different in the way God has created us. And no matter what the culture may tell you, unless you have a very, very rare genetic defect of an extra X or Y chromosome, you are thoroughly male or thoroughly female. Science, the biology shows that. From our brains to our bones, we are one or the other. The cellular processes down to the cellular level, each of your cells is either male or female and how it acts, even how it processes things like carbohydrates and, and fats and so forth. The design and the function is different. It's through and through. And no matter what you might change at a surface level, no matter what slight difference you might have in certain behaviors, one way or the other, that don't go against a certain trend, you still are thoroughly male or female in God, how God has made you. Despite what may be said, you can't be a woman trapped in a man's body or a man trapped in a woman's body. We are all clearly one of, or the other. Now, what do we do with the reality of gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction? Do we ignore it? Do we just say, well, it's, not a, it's a fiction, it's not real. It's, it's real. And it's common. And I would submit that our culture has done a great disservice to many by telling you that if you have any sense of dysphoria or same-sex attraction, you must be non-binary or homosexual, homosexual or bisexual. Our culture does that. So you, you're not allowed to have this sort of thought or tendency or whatever without being pushed in a certain way. And I would submit that most people have these sorts of things to some degree at some time. And some of us, it's persistent and it's even strong. That's a reality that we don't deny. But we don't run with that the way the culture tells us because those things don't define us. God's word defines us. God has made us male or female. We are assigned a gender when we are first conceived. And we have one from birth. And that's a good thing. It's part of God's design. So no matter how you might struggle one way or the other, you still are either male or female. That's how God has made you. And he has purpose in that. But we re must recognize that we live in a world that's fallen and broken. And the brokenness even affects biology. It affects genetic health and other things. And so sometimes there can be other things that are even biological that, that drive you one way or the other. We must recognize that. But that doesn't negate what God says. And that doesn't negate the fact that even though you might, in that 5% area, have a tendency one way or the other, you still have 95% of who you are made and functioning as male or female. And the culture would say, well, go with your preferences. That's how you define yourselves. That's how you fulfill yourselves. And God would say, no, I have made you a certain way for a certain purpose. And I want to display goodness and glory. I want to rescue you. I want to be your source and strength. I want to lead you. And so even in that area of struggle, God has 
good purpose in it, just like in any area of struggle. He's sovereign over the fact that the world has fallen and you have weakness and you have tendencies. And you struggle and you wonder. He wants to work out in you the power to overcome. He has overcome the world. And it's as we lay our lives before him in our weakness and our struggles and say, Lord, this is hard. He meets us and sustains us. And he says to us, this is the way, walk in it. And the Bible is very clear in terms of sexual ethics. Sexual expression uh, is meant for marriage. Heterosexual, male and female together for life marriage. That's the one standard that's there. And that affects everybody. It's really hard for everybody to some degree. And he calls us to this to trust him. And outside of that, he calls us to singleness. And he calls us to find fulfillment in that. Pastor Sam Alberry says this. Speaking of Jesus' teaching on sexual ethics, Jesus is saying the same kind of thing to everyone. When we rightly understand what he teaches about sexual ethics and about marriage, it is deeply humbling for every one of us. It's challenging for all of us because none of us naturally lines up with what Jesus teaches. His teaching on marriage and sex have been countercultural in every single culture in one way or another. This has never been easy. This quote might mean more to you to know that Sam Albury is a pastor and leader in the Anglican Church and with the Gospel Coalition, and he has struggled with same-sex attraction throughout his life. Yet he's remained single, and he's abstained from homosexual behavior. He's written numerous books, and he models a fruitful and fulfilling life. His book, Is God Anti-Gay, is a must-read for, I think, all of us in our culture. I would also recommend reading Rosaria Butterfield's books. She was a lesbian, practicing lesbian feminist, English professor at Syracuse, came to Christ through the loving friendship of a pastor and his wife nearby in their local church. She's brilliant and extremely helpful. She understands these issues well and has modeled a life of dependence on Christ and fruitfulness, fruitfulness despite struggling with same-sex attraction, even to this day. She says some profound things. One is, the fruit of homosexuality is the ethical outworking of a heart and mind and identity that rejects the idea that God is author and by implication that his word has the right to interrogate my life, not the other way around. And then she also says this, don't presume the worst sin in your gay and lesbian neighbor's life is sexuality. It's not. The worst sin is unbelief. That leads me to the final point in this. I started with this, uh, as we saw it earlier, uh, in, in this point, that it's the tragedy of rejecting God that leads to all these other things. That's the point here. The worst sin is rejecting the goodness and glory of God, rejecting God for something else, anything else. The worst sin is the sin of unbelief, not trusting this good and glorious God to work out his purposes in us even as we struggle. Not saying he is most glorious and true and beautiful and good and he's worth every fiber of our being and every choice we make. Anything short of that is unrighteousness. That's the point here. Final point and more quickly. Paul leads us to the final point. Our giving up God leads to be being given up to all manner of unrighteousness. 
So he has this long list. There are 20 aspects of unrighteousness in this last part, verses 28 to 32. They are arranged somewhat poetically. Uh, through the use of meter and rhyme, he's making a point here. And we may miss it. Sometimes in translation, we miss things, right? In a, from another language. So if I were to say to you, que es eso, eso es queso, it sounds pretty cool if you know Spanish. Uh, it rhymes, right? But if I say that in English, it means, what is that? That is cheese. There's no rhyme there, right? Well, what Paul says in the original language here, as he lists out these 20 things, there's, there's meter and rhyme. And I, I tried to translate it in a way that maybe gives you the sense here. Um, and what I think it actually, it actually sounds like to me, I think Paul's kind of putting it all together. It sounds kind of like a rap on the depravity of man. A rap song on the depravity of man. I won't try to rap it, but I'll say it. I think you can hear. And the point is, Paul wants us to feel, feel how bad the situation is. So he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, wickedness, greediness, maliciousness. They're full of envy, of murder, of strife, of deceit, of malevolence. They are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, exultant, inventors of evil to parents disobedient, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Those 20 things are said in that way in the original language to get us just to hear, this is bad. This is a problem. This upside-downness works itself out in all sorts of terrible stuff. And I think if we're honest, we have to affirm it, right? Just read the papers. Wait, no one does that anymore. Follow the news channel. Watch the videos. Read the tweets. Study history. Look at your own soul. The situation is bad. And I've used this illustration before. Imagine if we found a way to kind of track all your thoughts during the week. We had a, a chip and it could follow the brain waves and it was in your phone and so it heard everything and it put it all on a video. And we were going to have the highlights and lowlights of your week and on Sunday after our worship time we're going to show it here. You, your week. Would you want to be here for that? I don't think any of us would. The reality is, these sorts of things, they may not be to the worst degree, but they're there. And we ought to be shocked. We don't see the depth of our brokenness, but the Lord does. And you know, of course, you've been listening, the, the point of all this is not to, to leave us in this place of like, yeah, I'm a mess, have a nice day. But to lead us to be honest with the human condition honest with our own lives, honest with our own brokenness, honest with our own weakness, honest with our own disobedience, to say, yeah, in some way that's me. I'm unrighteous. I don't love God like that. I don't trust God like that. I don't follow God like that. I'm unrighteous. That's the point here is for us to see to some degree ourselves in all of this. And that we might be honest, that we might run to the only answer there is. The righteousness of God. And that's where Paul's going to take us in chapter 3. Again, I can't leave you. Sorry, I've gone over, but I can't leave you without showing you Romans 3, the answer. Romans 3, 10 and following. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. Then verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the righteousness of God. He is the only one who always loved 
the Lord God, his Father, with all of his being, all of the time. He loved him to, to the nth degree, and he loved us to the nth degree to go to the cross as the righteous one. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for who? All who, what? Believe. All who get their lives straightened out. No. All who figure out how to do it right. No. All who simply do what? Believe. And that word believe in scripture means you believe it's true, but you also receive it as your own. For all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, are made righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He shed his blood on the cross to, to bear God's holy justice for our unrighteousness to be received by faith. And so when we simply receive this as true, as our own, and say, Jesus, I want you not my sin, not my self-righteousness. We are counted righteous. We are reconciled with God. And we reverse the curse of this exchange of glory. Because when you receive Jesus, you are exchanging things back. Instead of exchanging God for, for your sin and your own way, now you're exchanging those things for Jesus. You're saying, I don't want those things. Can I have you back? And Jesus says, yes. I've done this for you, that you can have me back, you can have forgiveness, you can have life, you can have strength, you can learn to walk in my ways, no matter what your struggles might be, I am here, take heart, I've overcome the world. He is the righteousness of God, he is the answer to all these things. And so today, run to him, once again. Keep on running to him, run to him for the first time, if you've never put your faith in him, run to him once again, if you've known him your, most of your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.